Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the ongoing history of new music. The British music scene has always operated at warp speed. Songs and bands and sounds have always come and gone very quickly, even before the age of the Internet. This is what happens when you have a lot of people crammed into an island linked together by a huge and obsequious national broadcasting network and goaded by a hyper-competitive music media. But every once in a while, maybe once a decade, something really sticks. A movement takes root, grows organically, and then suddenly explodes to the point where everyone is talking about it. It even goes international with its songs and sounds and fashion and politics. In the 1960s, it was the British invasion led by the Beatles and the Stones. In the 1970s, it was the British spin on punk rock with the Pistols and the Clash. The 80s began with all those telegenic British bands on MTV, which set off the music video revolution. And in the 90s, well, this is kind of where it gets a bit complicated. Not complicated in a bad way. I mean, in an interesting way. It was an explosion of pride in Britishness that we really hadn't seen since February 7th, 1964, when Pan Am Flight 101 from London touched down at JFK Airport in New York carrying a band called The Beatles. This is Chapter 12 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock, and it's all about the thing they called Britpop. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. In the 90s, it did not get much more British than that. Blur, and the title track of their 1994 album, Park Life. The Cockney bits are courtesy of an actor named Phil Daniels. If you ever saw the movie Quadrophenia, he's the guy who played Jimmy the Mod. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're into Chapter 12 of our broad history of alt-rock. The last show was about the rise of grunge and the alternative nation in North America. This show is about the counterinsurgency that the British launched against that. At its height, Britpop was an all-encompassing social phenomenon in the UK. Not only did it result in some great music, but Britpop instilled the entire island with a new sense of pride. Suddenly, it was cool to be British again. London was the most swinging place on earth, and those who weren't from England wished they were. It was nothing short of unbridled musical nationalism. Now, in chapters 9 and 10, we talked about the rise of British indie culture in the 1980s and the whole idea of DJ culture and the club scene that exploded with new genres and styles. But by the end of the 1980s, the music scene in London had grown eh, a little stale. That's when the British music press, those self-appointed guardians of rock and roll culture in the UK, decided to hype what was happening in other cities. What was going on in, uh, in Manchester these days? They always seem to have something. Well, they weren't wrong. 
Manchester was one of the cities that embraced the Sex Pistols. The city had given the world Joy Division and New Order and the Smiths. It was ground zero for a lot of the club culture that had swept through Britain. So, what was going on now? Well, more of the same, really. The local music scene was extraordinarily healthy and prolific. Many young musicians had co-opted an attitude based on the acid house raves of the middle 80s, these huge parties where people dropped a tab of E and danced forever. They thought, what if you took the attitude of acid house and reintroduced proper guitars? So beats were looped, simple melodies were constructed, and 60s style psychedelic flourishes were added. And the result was a clash of jangly guitars and swirling organs and indie rock aesthetics and a beat that you could actually dance to. Dress it up with baggy pants and a bull haircut and you were golden. But while the looks and the hooks were very retro, the combination somehow also seemed very modern. And by late 1989, the British music press had discovered it and were calling the sound Madchester. Those are the Stone Roses with She Bangs the Drums, one of the many singles from their self-titled debut record, which was released on March 13, 1989. It is still ranked as one of the greatest British rock records ever. There were the Roses, then there were the Happy Mondays, led by the Ryder Brothers, who had a big part in introducing ecstasy to the crowd at the Hacienda, the Manchester nightclub co-owned by New Order and Factory Records. They were more house than pop, with heavier beats, and the melodies were more soulful, and the lyrics were more dense. They also deserve credit for coming up with the term Madchester. If you go back to November 1989, you'll find a Monday single called Madchester Rave On. The press pounced on that little bit of inspiration and turned it into a household word. The final part of this triumvirate was the Inspiral Carpets. They were among the more psychedelic sounding of all the Manchester bands with their 60s-inspired keyboards. They had their share of success and made their contributions, but it would be up to one of their roadies the guy who toted their guitars and amps from place to place, who would help change everything. More on him a little later. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Manchester thing was huge for a while. Along with the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and the Inspiral Carpets, we got the Charlatans, and we got James, and maybe a dozen other pretty good bands. But Manchester's golden period only lasted about 18 months. It just burned out. The Stone Roses were paralyzed by legal hassles. The Happy Mondays were too stoned to do anything. The Hacienda had been taken over by criminal gangs, and Factory Records was out of business, again. But music abhors a vacuum. Something had to take its place. But what? Well, out of local things to exploit, the British music press turned to grunge. Grunge was anointed the next big thing.
Now, many people have forgotten that the first professional journalists to really get excited about the Seattle grunge scene were not American. They were British. In early 1989, the two owners of the sub-pop record label, Jonathan Pullman and Bruce Pavitt, were desperate to hype their acts. Over beers one night, they concluded that they needed to go the Jimi Hendrix route. See, Jimmy was from Seattle, too, but back in the 1960s, he became a sensation in the U.K. long before he broke in America. Why couldn't they do the same thing with bands like Nirvana? So Pullman and Pavitt took a huge risk. Even though Sub Pop had no money, they scraped together enough cash to fly a writer from the British music paper Melody Maker over to see some gigs in Seattle. This guy's name was Everett True, and he wrote some very favorable things about what he saw and heard on his trip to America. In fact, it became a cover story for Melody Maker on March 18, 1989. And from that point, the hype was on. And naturally, once the Maker was on the story, so was the NME and all the other British music papers and magazines. The result was that while most of North America was still unaware of grunge, it was all the rage in the UK. This, however, created a problem for many in Britain. How could this music from the colonies be taking over? It's musical imperialism. It must be stopped. So, in response, other writers made an effort to hype something more homegrown, more British. And they first found it in a band called Sway. Swade, the band that really kick-started the Britpop revolution of the 1990s. Here was a group that once again believed in short, sharp, guitar-based pop songs laced with British slang and British eccentricities. And unlike the American grunge kids and their flannel and Doc Martens, Swade came with a sense of foppish fashion. Singer Brett Anderson was a fan of David Bowie's glam rock period of the early 1970s. And in 1992, just enough time had passed so that all this glam stuff once again sounded fresh and fabulous. It also helped that Suede were obvious fans of the Smiths and their one-two punch of singer, lyricist, and guitarist. The British music press, hungry for someone to succeed the Smiths, were all over Suede, giving them cover stories before they even released a single. Heck, they were being called the best band in Britain before they so much as stepped into a recording studio. They were just the thing to make British music fans forget all about Seattle. And when their self-titled first album came out on March 29, 1993, it became the fastest-selling debut album in the history of the UK. Now, Suede was part of what we can now call the first wave of Britpop in the 1990s. At the time that first Suede album came out, there was a magazine called Select, and it ended up becoming the mouthpiece for this burgeoning new movement. The April 1993 issue featured Suede's Bert Anderson on the cover next to a headline that read, Yanks Go Home. And what about the term Britpop? Well, at first people called this new music the new wave of new wave, but that was kind of a mouthful. Then a magazine called The Face published the B word in May of 1994 as an abbreviation of British pop. By the end of 94, the floodgates had opened to a slew of bands now being called Britpop. They were unabashedly British. Circling the outskirts of this universe were shoegazer bands like My Bloody Valentine and Ride and Lush and Swerve Driver and Slow Dive. And then in a slightly different orbit, you found Jesus Jones and the Soup Dragons and Ned's Atomic Dustbin. But it was in the center where all the action was happening. Closing very fast on that center was Blur. They had first surfaced back in 1989, and although they were from Colchester, which is east of London, they were lumped into what was happening in Manchester in the northwest. 
some 300 kilometers away. Now, that was admittedly a forgivable mistake, especially with this song featuring those Manchester-ish bits between beats three and four of every measure. This is from 1991. Blur came out of the gate hard, but then they stumbled hard in a haze of alcohol. And as they were trying to get their act together, that roadie from the Inspiral Carpets, now a swaggering employee in the parts department of British Gas, made his move. Noel Gallagher launched a coup d'etat on his younger brother's band, which was called Rain. He renamed it Oasis and took over. Everything. All the songwriting. After impressing the owner of a small indie label called Creation with their swagger, Oasis recorded a debut album that was at once new and familiar. There were bits of Beatles, bits of Bowie and T-Rex and the Jam and the Stones and the Stone Roses in there. But at the same time, these songs were performed with an intense new attitude. An almost punk attitude, in fact. This was guitar pop as loud as anything the Sex Pistols or the Clash had done, but with much more of a groove and with more melody, but without losing too much of the snarl in the vocals. It also helped that they gave the music press much to write about. Stupid quotes, drug use, public drunkenness, fistfights with each other and with others, both at home and abroad. Everything they did made for great, sensational headlines. But, you know, none of this would have mattered if the songs had sucked. And they didn't. The Oasis approach proved to be so popular that we started to hear and see similar bands. Elastica, Cast, The Boo Radleys, Gene, Teenage Fan Club, Dodgy, Sleeper, Menswear, Echo Belly, Ocean Color Scene, and Blur. By the time Oasis got rolling, Blur had cleaned up their act to the point where they were pitted head-to-head with Oasis as the leading British band. And the result was nothing short of a death match. More in a moment. 1994 through to 1996 were the peak years for Britpop. For the first time since maybe the 1970s, Brits were feeling good about themselves again. All this homegrown talent and groups and songs featuring comfortably familiar melodies and song structures faintly reminiscent of the good old days of the Beatles and the Stones. And once again, it seemed that British music was besting anything America or the rest of the world had to offer. The organizers of the annual Reading Festival were a big help too. The festival was reborn as an indie fest, offering huge exposure to some of these new exciting bands. But it was about more than just music. England was portrayed as the place to be, the most happening place on the planet, even by such American publications as Vanity Fair. It was swinging London and cool Britannia and all that. In hindsight, Damon Albarn of Blur had a lot to do with this. After a particularly bad tour of America, he came home to a country that was awash in American music, and he became determined to make British music British again. The result was a 1994 album called Park Life, and from the time of its release on April 25th, 1994, Britpop was pretty much off and running. Now, Britpop could not have existed without some outside forces beyond everybody's control. 
When Kurt Cobain died in April 1994, grunge in the entire American alt-rock scene was suddenly yesterday's news and started a long, slow decline. Blur and Britpop was right there, ready to pick up the slack. Britpop was also a very good distraction. Even though much of Europe's attention was focused on the growing problems in Bosnia, much of the British media spent their time chronicling the battle between Oasis and Blur. And again, this is quintessentially British. English music has always had its rivalries. Beatles versus the Stones, Sex Pistols versus the Clash, Stone Roses versus the Happy Mondays, but those were friendly sorts of battles. The Blur versus Oasis thing was vicious, and both sides were to blame. Damon Albarn started it when he found out when Oasis was going to release the first single from their What's the Story Morning Glory album, he moved the release date of the new Blur single up to the very same date, August 15th, 1995. Every single media outlet in the UK was mobilized for this event. One tabloid sent its people out to cover the vice habits of a dancer in one of Blur's videos. Another focused in on the vodka drinking habits of Noel Gallagher's mother. Even the stoic Financial Times ran a financial profile on both bands. Meanwhile, bookies took bets on which single would sell more. Even the BBC covered the battle on the nightly news with almost the same gravity as they did for the war in the Balkans. Meanwhile, the NME published an issue with a cover that declared this, quote, the British Heavyweight Championship. In the end, it was Blur by a nose. Country House, from Blur's fourth album, The Great Escape, outsold Roll With It from Oasis by about 55,000 copies. I want to check this out. Those two singles accounted for 40% of all the records sold in the UK that week. And in the two weeks that followed, The Great Escape sold more than 500,000 copies. But the ultimate winner in this war was Oasis. For the first time in years, a British band and a band with indie pop credentials to boot broke it open worldwide. That second album, What's the Story? Morning Glory. Again, this was a very British record, right from the familiar hooks to the cover shot, which was a picture taken down Berwick Street from the corner of Knoll Avenue, just south of Oxford Street. But unlike many British albums of recent years, this one translated beyond the UK. And for a while, Oasis was the biggest band on the planet, selling more than 10 million copies of Morning Glory. In the mid-90s, Britpop was more than just music. It was an era in British history. The parallels to Britain in the middle 90s were striking, a never-ending parade of fresh-sounding bands with the two biggest at war with each other. London was hot, culturally, socially, politically, and economically. The new prime minister was Tony Blair, a young guy who was not only a music fan, but who had also been in a rock band himself back in university. Among young people, there was a newborn pride in being British. But it couldn't last, could it? No, of course not. never does. The peak of Britpop was the summer of 1995. After that came the long, slow, inevitable decline. It wasn't obvious at first. So much momentum had been built up that no one noticed the cracks. BBC Radio 1 had briefly changed their music policy to include more indie rock and less of the standard commercial pop. Heck, even the University of Leeds began offering a symposium on Britpop. And for a while, the music just kept on coming.
pulp from the fall of 1995 and the winner of the 1996 Mercury Music Prize. But as things rolled into 1997, it became very apparent that all was not well in Her Majesty's Empire. The third Oasis album, Be Here Now, was seen as a stumble. And that really gave the entire Britpop thing a kick in the teeth. And then Blur's self-titled 1997 album didn't really sound very Britpop at all. In fact, it sounded really American in its lo-fi indie-ishness. And then there were the drugs, heroin especially. And so many artists were into so many chemicals that everything just began to fragment and splinter and fall apart. And by the end of 1997, Britpop was pretty much a dirty word from which everyone distanced themselves. Besides, the kids who had embraced Britpop in the early 90s had grown up and moved on. Their new heroes were Radiohead and The Verve and eventually Coldplay. And at the same time, a younger generation of music fans was coming of age. And you know what they wanted? Spice Girls, Britney Spears, Robbie Williams. No one really wanted to admit it in 1997, but after so many good years, it was the beginning of a dark time for alt-rock. The first five years of the 1990s were amazing. Grunge, Manchester, Britpop, Lollapalooza, the alternative nation. But with boom comes bust. And that's exactly what happened as the decade, the century, and the millennium ran down. Looked pretty bleak for a while, too. The rock is dead cries were everywhere. We'll examine what happened and why it happened next time on the appropriately numbered Chapter 13 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 